Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for attending this lecture at the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. If you're interested in learning more about us, please feel free to speak to one of our staff at the conclusion of this event. Um, I want to take a moment to remind you to please silence your cell phones, and um, just so you all know, this is an on-record event. Dr. Harlan Ullman is a strategic thinker and innovator whose career spans the world of business and government. Chairman of several companies and an advisor to the heads of major corporations and governments, he was the principal author of Shock and Awe, an inventor of brains-based approach to strategic thinking. Dr. Ullman is a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy, and he served in combat assignments in Vietnam. He holds an MA, MALD, and PhD from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, and he lives in Washington, D.C. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Ullman. Thank you, and from that introduction, I'd like to meet that fellow. Um, I'm going to make this rather informal, and I'm going to leave a lot of time for questions and answers, because I'm sure you have lots of them. Uh, the thesis of my book is that since World War II, America has lost every war that has started and failed every time it has intervened using military force for reasons that proved to be faulty or for failing to understand those particular circumstances. Let me start with two caveats, however. First, we won the big ones. We won World War I and we won World War II and the Cold War, and those counted most. Second, the U.S. military has performed, in my judgment, admirably. There will be a lot of people who will criticize it for saying, look, we haven't done very well in the use of military force. Why don't apples and generals stand up and quit? The fact of the matter is that's not within our culture. You can criticize our culture perhaps for those reasons. But this is not a military problem. It is a political problem. It's a social problem. And it's a cultural problem in the nature of our society. The fundamental reasons why we have failed, and let me just cite a few. We talked about Vietnam briefly. That was my war. We failed to understand that this was not a war to stop the communists from gobbling up Southeast Asia, even though that's what we thought. It was not a war to save democracy. But we did not realize that. Similarly, in Iraq the second time, we went in for reasons that had to do with weapons of mass destruction that did not exist. But the fundamental factor was that the Bush administration believed that by imposing democracy in Iraq, we could change the geostrategic landscape of the greater Middle East. And we did, not for the best. Let me make an isolated case study, something you probably would not have heard before, that gets to some of the problems that we have. In October 1983, some of you may remember that 241 Marines and servicemen were blown up in Beirut. 
in the marine barracks. It was a catastrophic loss of life. And then several days later, we intervened in Grenada. Now, it's the Grenada intervention I want to talk about because this exemplifies some of the problems we face. The reasons that we went into Grenada that were explicitly stated at that time by the Reagan administration were to save some 221 American students studying at St. George's Medical School. Some would argue that the reasons we went in were to paper over what had happened in Beirut just before, to change the topic of information, and so others would argue we went in because we were frightened that the Cubans were building an air base for the Soviet Union in Grenada, and we didn't want to have another Soviet air base in the Caribbean. Well, let's take a look at the dramatic aspects of the case. The task force was formed under Navy Vice Admiral named Joe Metcalf, some 18,000 American military personnel that were cobbled together. They sailed down. The initial stages of the assault were not good. Several SEALs drowned because nobody understood the currents. We had no way of communicating properly. And the White House was pinging incessantly on Admiral Metcalf saying, what about the students? What about the students? Metcalf fired back in an unclassified message telling the White House the students were not in jeopardy. Let me say that again. The reasons we went into Grenada that were explicitly stated were because we wanted to protect some 221 American students. The operational commander rejected that by saying they're not in danger. Now, the other reason we went in was because we were very concerned about this air base that was being built. Well, there was an air base being built in Grenada. And guess who was paying for it? The British government. Because for years, the British were trying to improve tourism in Grenada. And they contracted this out to a British corporation, Plessy PLC, owned by the Clark family, which was to the right wing of Genghis Khan. But being great capitalists, they went to the low-cost bidder, which is Fidel Castro in Cuba. And Castro said, I would be delighted to provide, in essence, slave labor, but cheap labor. But for these out, that this labor had to be accompanied by armed guards because I'm afraid they're going to defect. So the reason, that the secondary reason, was because we thought that an air base was being built by the Cubans was wrong. Now, even more interestingly, and as you probably know, what caused this thing to happen was that Maurice Bishop, who was the Prime Minister of, of, of Grenada, had been killed in a coup, which is kind of story. The night before the invasion, Maggie Thatcher, then British Prime Minister, called Ronald Reagan and said, Ronnie, I'm getting reports that you may be going into Grenada. Now, you know, you're trying to put cruise missiles into Greenland Common. We have this huge problem. I've got this huge problem with the left wing and the anti-nuclear movement. Tell me it's not true. And so Reagan, and candidly in his memoir, said, what else could I do? I had to lie. So this is how we got into Grenada. Now, I use this as a very, very small example to make the points of why we failed and why we have failed. In the first place, Certainly for the last four presidents, the presidents that we elect to office, by and large, lack the experience, the judgment, the background to be chief executive. And sometimes they don't learn in time. 
This has been true for the last four in my judgment. The last president who had the judgment, strategic sense, and experience was George H.W. Bush, who in 1991, after the first Iraq War, had a 90% approval rating, and then was defeated the following November 1992 by Bill Clinton, which is rather interesting. Now, secondly, there are many other reasons that constitute why presidents do not make the right decisions. As I noted earlier, ideology or politically political expediency. Go back to John Kennedy's administration. Kennedy ran on the so-called missile gap in 1960, in which he asserted, because the Russians had put a monkey and God knows what else in space, that we were far behind. But the fact is, there was a missile gap, and it was the Russians behind. But this was ideology. And I remember having a great discussion with Robert McNamara, who was the Secretary of Defense. When Kennedy came in, you may remember, or you may not know, that he had three defense supplemental uh, bills. He doubled the number of strategic nuclear weapons, did all this kind of stuff. And I said to McNamara, you know, Bob, we had, we had absolutely unimpeachable evidence that the Soviets were far behind and they wanted to reach a detente with us. That Khrushchev knew he could not afford guns and butter. So why didn't Kennedy listen? And McNamara said to me, it made no difference. This is what he promised in the campaign. Now does that ring any bells 50 odd years later with the current president? Because it was a campaign promise. So you've got ideology. You have the sort of bureaucratic issues where the, bureauc the bureaucracy just rolls on and it tends to be in the center. It doesn't want to get out of the way to go too far one direction and to be innovative. You have group things. This was the problem in Iraq the second time. That everybody knew that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction because he had used them before and he was a bad guy and we wanted to believe it. You also have the nature of American politics, where we need an adversary. We need an adversary about which to rally public support. We also fail in our ability to have sufficient knowledge and understanding because we are often culturally ignorant. In Vietnam, I was prepared during my training for escape evasion and survival for the jungles and heat of Vietnam my training at Water Springs at 7,000 feet above sea level in sunny California in the middle of winter, where the biggest problem we faced was frostbite, not what we would face in Vietnam. We had no idea what was happening in Vietnam of the three wars between the North and South in the South and between the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese in the North. We had no idea. And this lack of cultural understanding and knowledge persisted. Before September 11th, very, very few Americans understood the difference between Sunni and Shia, or even what they were. These are all profoundly difficult issues that are part of our culture. And this has not been helped today when, over the last 50 years, because government has become delegitimized and credible, Vietnam started this run of credibility. Nixon, Watergate, Vietnam continued it. A week, Jimmy Carter persisted, and on and on and on and on. And what happened was that politics became far more pernicious and far more politicized when the left 
drifted far more to the left, the right has drifted far more to the right, and campaign financing has monetized politics to the state where you are now with us or against us. There's no center, there's no stability, there's no compromise. Under these circumstances, we have the worst possible of all worlds in which it's very difficult to apply common sense in what we do. And I can be equally critical of the Clinton administration, the Bush administration, the Obama administration, and the Trump administration on each of these grounds. Now, I can go into greater depth about my argument about why we have lost every war we started. But I think it's more important that we discuss solutions. So let me just go through the various branches of government to work our way through, and then I'll be delighted to answer your questions. First of all, Article 1 of the Constitution. What is Article 1, anybody? What? Article 1 of the Constitution. What is Article 1? The legislation. Legislation. The founding fathers had a real reason for doing that. All right, we need to reorganize Congress. Because if Congress is going to be on the landing of these things, it needs to be on the takeoff. And what I have argued for is the equivalent of a National Security Council that Congress would create that would liaise with the National Security Council in the White House. <clears throat> and the obvious person to lead this, who is the only person that has an official role in both Article I in the legislature and Article II in the executive? And what is his role or her role? President of the Senate. So you would have the Vice President as President of Senate of the Senate convening this NSA that would meet, and you would have the senior members of Congress, the leaders of both houses, and then members of the Senate Armed Services Committee, House Armed Services Committee, Foreign Affairs Committee. But Congress has got to be much more deeply involved. Because quite frankly, over the years, Congress has let itself be overridden by the chief executive whether that was Bill Clinton or Barack Obama or Donald Trump. And Congress has got to be taking a larger role. Let me step back, and if I'm going to blame blaming people, the fundamental problem we face is us. We get the government that we deserve because most Americans don't vote. Has anybody been watching the election of these two little young ladies from the 14th District of New York and then the recent election in Boston? Mr. K, Ms. Ocasio-Cortez got what percent of the total number of registered Democrats in the 14th district? 10% or something. Yes. 16,000 out of 350,000. So she's going to be the member of Congress based on 16,000 out of 350,000 votes. The same thing is true in Congress, in, in, in Massachusetts. How many Americans vote in the election generally, the presidential election? A little over half. How many people vote in congressional elections? A lot less. A lot less. So unless or until Americans are engaged and vote, you're going to see politics dominated by the extreme left and right because most Americans are in the Senate. Whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or an Independent, most people are within the bounds of the Senate. But that voice is not being heard today. What do we do about the executive branch? Well, I have a number of uh, ideas here. First, in the White House, there needs to be part of the National Security Council, a red team, 
that scrupulously, and I mean scrupulously, challenges all the assumptions of policy. Now normally when you create a strategy, as George Marshall, General of the Army, said years ago, if you get the objectives right, a lieutenant can write a strategy. That's not exactly true, but it's close. So when we have a strategy, it has to have basic assumptions. Basic assumption number one in Iraq the second time. They had weapons of mass destruction. He was going to use weapons of mass destruction. Assumption number two, that democracy could be imposed and it was going to change the strategic landscape positively. And number three, after we defeated and toppled Saddam, we would have been able to establish some kind of stable government. Who challenged those assumptions? Nobody. We never got to number two or three. So you need a White House which is so organized so that it will be able to challenge these assumptions because if you don't get those right, don't even start. In the Pentagon, the Pentagon is capable of giving very good strategic advice to the degree that anybody listens. But one of the problems that we face is that in the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Joint Chiefs of Staff are inherently conflicting because not only are they members of the Joint Chiefs, the highest decision-making body who work with the Chairman, they are also service chiefs. Now it's all well and good to act in a collegial fashion, but then you've got to go back and represent your service. And people in the service are not going to be very happy if the service chief says, well, I'll be happy to give $15 billion to the other guys because they need it more than us. It doesn't work that way. So my argument is you need to split the joint chiefs from the service chiefs, and the joint chiefs are the people who provide a huge amount of strategic advice because a lot of that stuff is good and it's a lot better from the rest of government. What do we do in the intelligence branch? The CIA has been largely criticized because in the CIA, to be promoted, you've got to go to a management job. We don't allow young people to serve as analysts and all the way up be promotable. And it's actually people to people where you learn and as your contemporaries in other parts of the world become more senior, if you know them, then you have a much better insight into what's happening. I'll give you an example. When I was at graduate school 150 years ago at Fletcher, one of my classmates was a young Libyan named Shukri Ghanas. Nobody probably knows anything about Shukri. And when he was at Fletcher, he had one objective in mind, two objectives in mind. Not to be killed by Gaddafi, because he was on the hit list, and two, to engage as many women as he could find. And he was successful in both counts. In 2001, Shukri, who had been banished from Libya, was called back to be the petroleum minister. I called up my good friend Colin Powell, the Secretary of State, and said, Colin, Shukri Ghana has gone back to Libya. Gaddafi is coming out of the closet. No, 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 you know what you're talking about. Six months later, Shukri becomes the prime minister. Gaddafi was signaled, and yet this was rejected. Have you, if you had an agency where and I've been in the CIA, and I had my contacts in this particular area, I would have better first-hand knowledge to do all these kinds of things. We also have to take a book out of Bletchley Enterprise during World War II and the breaking of codes. I think you're all familiar with Bletchley Park and what happened. What we need to do is to have far better open source material. 
And given the internet, and given your access to anything in the world you want, from overhead satellites to uh, social media, there are so many things that can be done that we don't do right now. I'll give you an example. The Atlantic Council, I'm a senior advisor. We have a group of young people in the context of Ukraine who have been tracing before it became understood that the, that the Russians were engaged with military force, tracked a Russian paratrooper from Siberia into Ukraine using social media. He tracked it because he was posting himself on Instagram and whatever these other things are. We don't do enough of that. And so we have to be able to use open sources. Now, on top of this, what we also need, I think most importantly, is a brains-based approach to strategic thinking. Now, you may say brains-based. I mean, that really doesn't make any sense. Everybody's going to use their brains. What are you talking about? The fact of the matter is we don't. A brains-based approach to strategic thinking consists, in my mind, of three parts. First, this is the 21st century and not the 20th century. This century is profoundly different in virtually every aspect. 20th century was binary or bipolar. It was the central powers uh, versus the Allies in World War One. It was the Allies versus the Axis in World War Two. It was East versus West, Warsaw Pact versus NATO in the Cold War. We were a superpower. It was a three-quarter superpower in terms of the Soviet Union. Terms like deterrence and containment could work in this bipolar world. That no longer exists. What has happened? The diffusion of power um, and globalization has leveled the playing field. In absolute terms, the United States is still the most powerful military economic force in the world. But guess what? Relatively, that has changed. We may have more military power than anybody else, but those differences are shrinking. The Chinese are growing somewhat, though we exaggerate. We're concerned about the Russians. But think about taking on Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. These guys did not have an army. They did not have an Air Force. They did not have a Navy. How do you defeat, with the best military in the world, bad guys who don't have one? This is called asymmetric warfare, and we are not very good at it. We spent $70 billion on counter IEDs, improvised explosive devices, which accounted for most of our casualties in Iraq the second time in Afghanistan. $70 billion! What did the other side spend? Ten cents, a million dollars. That's a cost exchange ratio of infinitely against us. And so we need to understand that the 21st century is far different. We need to be able to do this in conjunction with allies, potentially with adversaries. We and the Russians have similar interests in dealing with terrorism and dealing with radical Islam. We have lots of other differences. But we still not have gotten over our 20th century, the 20th century view. Containment and deterrence may work in a bipolar world, but how does it work, for example, against Islamic radicals? How do you deter somebody in Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State or one of these other groups from blowing themselves up? You really don't do it with military force. You've got to address the problems, which are desperation, bad government, and the fact that elites seem to be taking too much advantage, which caused, quite frankly, pissed off people. 
But unless or until you understand that, you're not going to be able to proceed. So the differences between the 21st century and the 20th century are, are huge. As I said, how do you contain? How do you contain the Chinese from militarizing these small islands in the China Seas? How do you use, how do you prevent or deter the Chinese from using international law to their advantage by line? How do you do that? Take another step. How do you deter somebody from using cyber? How do you deter the 13-year-old kid in Uzbekistan who decides he wants to tap into the stock exchange and bring it down? I obviously exaggerate. But the fact of the matter is, we have not thought these things through. And this framework needs to do it. Second, we have to realize that the target for all of this must be the minds and perceptions of a particular adversary. This was originally called shock and awe. Now what happened the second time in Iraq was not shock and awe. Tommy Franks made that claim that we're using shock and awe. What we did instead was desert storm on steroids. We're going to smash the Iraqi army and get to Baghdad and then leave. Shock and awe was far different. Shock and awe started with what is the end state you want? And the end state we wanted was more or less a stable government in Iraq. How do you get there? Well, the way you get there is to bring the Iraqis on board. So it means you don't disband in the Iraqi army. You don't get rid of everybody in the Baptist party who run these things. And at least you know what you're doing. So you have to have shock and awe. You have to understand what it is you want the other person to do or to stop doing what they are doing. That's the basis of, of what Sun Tzu argued, what causes it's argued, but we fail to do it. Thirdly, and as important, we need to have knowledge and understanding of what we are getting involved in. This is probably one of our greatest deficiencies, because we tend to believe that people either think as we do, or need education and to bring them up to our levels. This is sometimes called mirror imaging. It's also lazy because we don't incentivize people, incentivize people to become students and experts in various regions and cultures. We try to do it in the State Department, but we have emasculated the State Department. We've cut its spending. We've driven good people out. So where do you get this? And if you're in the military, unless you're a combat arms person, that means infantry, tanks, artillery in the Army, fighter pilot in the Air Force, and maybe a, a, a surface officer, submariner, or uh, an aviator. You're probably not going to get promoted to the highest levels. There are some exceptions. So how do you change that? Because we need knowledge and understanding to be able to get our missions accomplished successfully. In any profession, if you don't have that, imagine if you're a surgeon and you don't have sufficient knowledge and understanding what's going to happen. You're going to, be, you're going to get the biggest lawsuits in the world you've ever had. And it's the same through it, it's same in, in any kind of profession. So you need a brains-based approach to do this. Now, will any of this happen? I don't know. Generally speaking, it's taken a crisis for us to change. December 6, 1941. Battleships were the crown jewels of the U.S. Navy. What happened a day later became the aircraft carrier by default 
on September 10th. We had no idea about Al-Qaeda. We really were, I shouldn't say we had no idea, but we were not really concerned about that. And so and September 11th, we changed. Now the question is, can we make these necessary changes before some crisis intervenes? Some crisis of whatever magnitude. And I don't know what the, that, that may be. You can predict, you can read fiction, and you can see a lot of good movies that talk about these crises. But we have other problems. I would argue that the greatest threat that this country faces is not a looming Russia. We exaggerate them in my view. It's not China. We could deal with China. It's not the Islamic State. It's not Kim Jong-un who's got this great tailor in Harvard. We can deal with these people. What we cannot do is with a government that is failing and has failed to govern satisfactorily. Why do you think we're in this position right now? We can say the economy is bubbling along, that unemployment is 3 or 3.5%, that the economy grew by 4% last quarter, and the world is terrific. But it isn't. Because the majority of Americans cannot make ends meet. The cost of, dare I say, education, retirement, health care are extraordinary. Too many families have two working parents to make ends meet. Too many families are afraid about the future. In 1964, just before the Gulf of Tonkin, in August, got us engaged in Vietnam, a Pew poll found that 75% of Americans trusted the federal government and believed the American dream was real and their children and grandchildren would live better than they would. The same poll, Pew poll, taken six months ago showed that 75% of Americans do not trust the federal government and do not believe the future will be better for their children. And there are lots of reasons to worry. Our national debt is now exceeding $20 trillion. That's trillion with a T. Because of the tax cuts, and they did stimulate the economy, our deficit this year will be about a trillion and a half dollars and forever a trillion dollars. Interest rates now are a little under 3%. What happens when interest rates go to 5 or 6%? You now have a debt service of, say, a trillion or a trillion and a half dollars a year. What's the total size of our federal budget? About four and a half trillion dollars. So that means a quarter of the budget is going to go to debt service. Now, what is that going to do to Social Security? What is that going to do to health care? What is that going to do to discretionary spending? What is that going to do to defense? The only solution short of a crisis is for the American public to become engaged. The American public has to take back their government. That means people have got to be better informed and they've got to realize the situation we're in, which now is manageable. This is not existential. The country is not going to go to hell overnight. It can be corrected. So the fundamental issue, and your graduate school, your school here, is to assist in this of re-engaging the American public. Because unless or until our public is going to be engaged in its government, government will continue to be in gridlock, it will continue to fail, and that is in nobody's interest. With that, I'd be delighted to answer all your questions or comments. Yeah, we'll just start here and work our way back.
Yes, sir. Can you identify yourself, please? Yes, sir. Uh, Carl Galvin, uh, domain reference nidealvibsarm.net. Sir, you mentioned the uh, circumstances of going into Iraq yeah. being um, a misunderstanding that there maybe weren't weapons of mass destruction. Also, uh, Gulf of Tonkin, uh, can you comment on what perhaps has come out more recently about whether Gulf of Tonkin was uh, a uh, fabricated incident? It was. It's so, come out recently. Is part of our problem that actually reasons are fabricated even through what might be called false flag terrorism to, to go to war? Uh, secondly, concerning the monetary issue, 1971 when Nixon took us off the gold standard right. and abandoned our Bretton Woods, Bretton Woods was designed to facilitate a stable economic activity globally. We've begun to use an inflated uh, credit brought into existence at usury as our dollar, and we're engaged in a process that if we begin to slow down the borrowing, the system implodes. So can we gravitate back towards an honest monetary system and maybe a new Bretton Woods agreement as a way to... No. Okay. Let <laughs> me ask your first question. Um, the Johnson administration was committed to doing something in Vietnam. Vietnam was, was, was mine. There was the first attack uh, that was real PT boat attack. We then sent back same destroyer, two destroyers. The second attack never took place, and we should have known better. But Johnson seized on this because he felt that the North Vietnamese would cave. Send in several bombing strikes, it's going to be over. And so the whole notion here was just crazy. And so this was part of the, the, the concept that we had to stop the Soviet aggression. The notion was that here was the aggression in Southeast Asia, started with Eisenhower, falling dominoes. And in fact, there were falling dominoes, but they weren't dominated by communists. They were dominated by tin pot dictators like Pol Pot and so forth, who ruined their countries, but this was not a massive communist conspiracy. So we really took the advantage of the second attack as a pretense to get engaged in Vietnam because we thought this would be a quick win. Uh, about the economy, the only choices we have, uh, this administration failed because the way we could have jump-started our economy, in my mind, was a national infrastructure bank. And you need several trillions of dollars to do that. And the way that that could have been done was to repatriate all the money that our corporations have abroad because of tax shelters and said you can bring it back but you have to invest in basically 30-year bonds and we will pay you 200 basis points above prime, 2% over prime. And that this money would then go out done on a state-by-state -state basis uh, to fix roads, uh, to fix uh, infrastructure, to fix everything you can imagine, ports, communications, uh, power grid. That was the only way to do it. I don't see how we can spend our way clear because the notion of supply-side economics is that if you cut taxes sufficiently, then you're going to have enough increase in the rate of GDP to cover all this debt. That has never worked. That has never worked. So you've got two choices. You've got to raise taxes and you've got to cut spending. And no politician is prepared to do that. And a Bretton Woods agreement is not going to be helpful here. On top of that, uh, depending upon what sources you read, uh, global debt is around $200 trillion. And this is a huge problem as we are seeing in Turkey, we're seeing it in Australia and elsewhere. 
So you've got this issue of an explosion of debt. The Chinese are overly leveraged. And so the financial international system really has got some huge, huge problems. And unless or until people in Congress realize how serious this is, we're going to continue along and continue along. And as Bob Rubin, the former Secretary of the Treasury and co-chairman of Goldman Sachs some time ago, wrote in the Washington Post about three weeks ago, you don't know when it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. And we better take action before it happens. Whether we will, I doubt. That's what we're facing. Yeah. Oh, an example of what's wrong is last November, Congress lowered the taxes on the rich. Uh, at a cost of $3 trillion, which resulted in $3 trillion in increase in the national debt. More than that over time. Well, maybe well, yeah. a trillion dollars a year, a little bit more. Right. But, and that, and that meant, meant that at that point, it would be it was again roughly perhaps more three trillion dollars more than the GDP national debt. You know, right now our, our GDP is around twenty trillion, and our national debt is around twenty-three. Yeah. No, it's around twenty-three now. Fine, but it, the point is, it's a big number. Right. And the point is, it's a debt. It's, it's you know, if it was switched the other way around, and the GDP was twenty-three and the national debt was twenty. It wouldn't be such a serious matter. It would be. Sorry, because the question I mean, is going to be. The, what is more, the, the, the serious nature of it is enhanced by the fact that the debt is greater than the GDP. It's not a question of the great. The great, regardless of, of, of that ratio, just multiply whatever the debt is by five, which is going to be an interest rate, five percent, and that becomes about a quarter of our federal budget. That's the Democrats. Who's handling over here? We are going around. Yes. Um, could you talk about your own transformation? I mean, you were at one time one of the advocates of uh, shock and awe. You were the one who stated that the way to defeat a country was to knock out their infrastructure, their water system, their command and control, and and that's what you went into the war in Iraq with. No, no, we didn't actually. We did not. Well, that's a misunderstanding. <laughs> shock at all. For sure, there was uh, some consequences to going into the war in Iraq, Iraq that led to a, a counter movement within the Iraqi people that we exploited the rest of the rest. So, would you have tried now? What would you? What would you, what would you advise now if it was the same circumstances? I, this is uh, the irony is here. Don Rumsfeld, believe it or not, was a rock member of our group. What happened in Iraq in 2003 was the furthest thing from shock and awe. The furthest thing. It was the antithesis. If we were going to use shock and awe, we had several aspects. The first part was that knowledge and understanding were critical. So what did we want to achieve? We wanted to achieve stable Iraqi government post-Saddam. How do you do that? Well, the first thing you do is to try to create a mutiny and a revolution. We didn't do that. As Sun Tzu observed, the best way to win a battle is bloodlessly. We were not able to do that. Second, we could have threatened the use of military force far more objectively. We didn't do that. Thirdly, we didn't think about what happens next. So all the basic tenets of our shock law were completely ignored in terms of Iraq. I believe we could have defeated Saddam with minimum military force. That's we not didn't do that back then. We, we could have done it. 
But your transformation now is after the fact. No, no, it was before the fact. I mean, you, most of your statements were, didn't we have to knock them out? No, 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 no. You, you, I, I don't want to get into huge, but that's not true. That is not true. Um, and at the time, I argued against what the United was opposed to the war in Iraq in the first place. Very much so. But had we applied shock and awe the way it was envisaged, I believe it would have turned out much differently. We'll never know. But when Tommy Franks used it, this was just a slogan. This was just something on the marquee. This is what we're going to do. And interestingly, after the attack started, the Daily Telegraph in London had a full-page photograph of a building blowing up with the caption, Baghdad Blitz, and shock and awe disappeared the next day. But what we did was not shock and awe. Far from it. Shock and awe is using your brains most efficiently achieve what you want because you start at the end state. We did not do that. Our end state was defeating the Iraqi army and getting rid of Saddam, and that was wrong. That's where we got into trouble. This man in the yellow. Okay. Um, one is our State Department is organized country by country, and they have right. expressed well, I asked this question at a lecture last week too. How has the State Department dealing with the fact that we're not dealing country by country? And the answer was very poorly. So you made a different answer. The other question is how are we going to get the people of the country to do anything about our government unless we educate them as to how this works? Well, that's part of that. The, the two, you raised two, two very good points. If you take a look at the way our government is organized for national security, the way the Department of Defense is organized with its combatant commands and the Pentagon organization, how the State Department is organized regionally, and how the CIA is organized, they're all organized differently. So if I want to have a meeting on Venezuela, I probably need 40 people <laughs> because of the misorganization of government. Now, there are some reasons for it. But this is a huge part of the problem. We're not organized properly. Uh, about education, it's been a, it's been a terrifically difficult time. Uh, we don't teach civics anymore. We've been going on and on and on. And on. Uh, education, certainly in the under the uh, below the college level, in many ways is broken. There are some shining beacons, but unless you have money or live in a good area, it's sad. We have not put enough money into that. Um, one of the possibilities that could make a big difference is that there are a larger number of people running for Congress who have military experience. And the younger generation is far more pragmatic. I mean, the younger generation, 25, so forth. Because they realize a lot of the problems about college debt, so forth. And it may well be that a transformation could be coming from the younger generation. Um, but that will take too long. It's going to take some of the to the degree that we've had elder statesmen, I'm not sure exactly who they are. <laughs> but you've got no labels group that John Hudson and Joe Lieberman have started. Um, whatever you view about John McCain, John McCain's passing was, was unfortunate because John was one of the people who had these good ideas. And so for the time being, we're the void. So I do not have a good answer right now about how you educate. I have ideas about how we would implement this. But the government right now is not capable of implementing it. And until you get a serious Department of Education, it's not going to happen. And even then it may not. I don't mean to be pessimistic, but you, you, you 
you rightly cite two huge weaknesses that we have that are here and we're probably not going to change. Yes, ma'am. Uh, Elaine Sereo, I'm Associate Director of Private University in Camp Ukraine. Uh, I live and work here, though. What do you? Well, for lots of reasons. There are two. Very, very good. Okay, well, I'll speak a little louder. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for the presentation. It's sort of like uh, looking at a, a, a 30 level torch, you know, <laughs> on all these cases. You get so many levels, sure. uh, so many layers. Uh, you started out with uh, talking about uh, the most recent, and sort of felt that we had the last uh, present that you understood. I had often thought that uh, Herbert Bush understood. You did too. Uh, but and he also had, had, had Brent Scowcroft. Yes. Yes. But, yes, he did, and he had a lot of things. Um, but I was also very disappointed over the years when realizing that part of he also was the instrument for keeping our people in Iran. Uh, when the, the, uh, the embassy, all the people there, that are under hostage. No, that was during Jimmy Carter. Yes. Before he went, before he became vice president for Bush, when he was uh, CI, well, okay, when he in the lead up, well, not Bush, I, excuse me, uh, Reagan, when keeping the people in hot who are the hostages there until Reagan put his hand on the Bible. In other words, we could have had those hostages out sooner. The agreement was to have it out sooner. But the agreement was uh, thwarted by uh, former President Bush, oh. senior. Well, by was the president. He was the president. They had cut. They had. No, that, 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 sorry, that's not. He was not president. No, when Carter was president, and the hostages were taken, and there was an opportunity to bring the hostages home closer to the end, when. It was negotiated by Herbert Walker Bush. It is not. Sorry, I, I, I'm sorry, but we disagree on facts. It's not exactly what happened. Well, there's reports that... There are lots of reports, but that is not what happened. Because Ronald Reagan had threatened, and because the Iranians detested Jimmy Carter. Yes. For any number of reasons. Right. Especially the supporting the Shah. Right. They were not, right. were not going to grant Carter any kind of legitimacy, and they waited for it. Exactly. Anyway, yes ma'am. Hi, thank you for your presentation. My name is Jenna Russo, and I'm a dual JD Masters of International Affairs candidate at American, yeah. and a research associate at the Public International Law and Policy Group. Uh, I'm wondering what, in your opinion, uh, you would see as being crucial components uh, for aspiring leaders in global politics, so people, you know, in their 20s, 30s. Very simple. Know your stuff, have the courage to stand by your principles, and don't keep quiet. And second question, <laughs> um, being uh, I really appreciated your discussion of governmental changes, uh, but looking to, uh, along with the uh, Lincoln uh, Yellow, uh, 
cultural factors and public education, uh, what do you see as potential changes needed in media as a form of informal public education, even though it's not the school systems, for the way that society goes about perceiving our role in the world and uh, their understanding of history and current events? Um, I don't have any prescriptions for media except self-policing. And, and one, of the, one of the problems we face, the contradiction of the, of the Trump administration, is that it creates so much bad news that the media has nothing else to report on. And it was a field that, you know, the Washington Post reports regularly that Donald Trump lies at least eight times a day. You know, and the other, you know that subject, if it bleeds, it runs above the phone. And so you've got all this stuff. The media now is caught in this dilemma in that because it's reporting the majority of news which is bad, it tends to be seen as biased. And I don't think there's any way of correcting that particular contradiction, provided that the media is scrupulous in making sure it gets its facts right and its self-policing. But now that you have the internet, and anybody can get on the internet and come up with any crazy story which is believable. For example, right now, everybody familiar with the swift waiting of John Kerry, where John Kerry's heroism in Vietnam was turned against him. John McCain is being swift voted because there are stories in the media which are absolutely wrong, which condemn McCain for starting the Forrestal Fire in 1967, when it was a huge fire, they blame him for starting his engine and blowing up, which is all nonsense. They blame him for being cowardly as a POW, which is nonsense. They blame him for so-called flat-hatting, which got him shot down in Vietnam, which is all nonsense. And yet, a proportion of people will always believe that. And one of the things, one of the things that bothers me in this country, and I speak as a, as a fierce, non-partisan independent. I may offend some people here. I used to think that one party lost its mind and the other party lost its soul. I'm now convinced that both parties have lost their minds and their souls. I'd rather be a communist. But the fact that only 60%, I say only 60%, find Donald Trump's approval as a disapproval of Donald Trump strikes me as a catastrophe. But even worse, that 30 or 40% of Americans approve is even, and I despair of that. Is any rational, I'm somebody who, who's been equal opportunity critic. You know, when somebody does something wrong, I'll support it, and if they don't do something, I will criticize. And so we have a huge problem. And American politics today has become so polarized, you're either with us or against us, there's no stability in compromise. This is a huge threat. And I wish I had a way of taking it on. All I can tell you is give you evidence of why it's so bad. During Watergate, Howard Baker said, what did the president know and when did he know it? Who is a Howard Baker in the Senate today? It's run by geriatrics. You go back to John Warner, Sam Nunn, Scoop Jackson, Tip O'Neill, I can go on and on. Where are they? Tell me the heavyweights in the Senate or in the House. They're not there. And one of the reasons they're not there is because politics, the rules of, of both houses over the last 40 or 50 years, have become anti-democratic because they were resisting against the seniority system, the 
The Democrats did this in the 70s. And then the Republicans, we got rid of the filibuster rule, which I think is crazy. But all these things happen. It's a fault of both parties. I'm not suggesting one party's rules. That has got to be fixed. And there are no easy, if there were easy solutions, we would have found. One of the difficulties we face today is that these problems are not easy. What's happening in Syria, what's happening in, with, with the refugee issue, what's happening in North Korea, what's happening everywhere. If they're easy to solve, we solve them. But coming to, with a really good solution to a tough issue is never easy. And so I wish I could say, here's what we do, A, B, C, and D. But one has to appreciate the challenges we face and hope that the American people will rise to the challenge. Uh, and I understand that hope is not a strategy. Yeah. please. Yeah, my name is Carlos Teixeira. I'm a visiting scholar from Brazil at Georgetown University. And I actually do have a question about your book. Good. So, about the arguments that you make. It's one question about your premise, one question, it's about the, the causes of uh, sure. what, what you're talking about, and another the one about the solutions you propose. Uh, first one, um, and uh, it's your arguments that the United States has lost every war it has fought since 1945. It is started. It is started. It is started. And uh, does it count the Gulf War? Uh, there is an argument also about uh, the 2003 Iraq War that uh, it's not completely clear that the United States has lost. We can say it's a, it's a disaster, it was a financial uh, failure. You also say that the Germans and Japanese never lost World War II. Look at them today. Yeah, no, by losing, by losing, we did not achieve our objective, right. and we set the Middle East on fire. So that 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 was losing. Yeah. Well, what do you mean by losing and failing? And, uh, Very simply, you yeah. didn't achieve your objectives, and you made the world worse for what you did. Do you have to go for the first go for? No, we didn't start. Uh, what a Korea War. So also that was a draw. And, and the second one is uh, the reasons for, for, for the U.S. losing yeah. those wars. You said one is political polarization, and, um, and the other one was the fact that Americans don't go out and follow the No, I said the special reason was that we elect presidents yes. who are not prepared, ready, and experienced enough. That's a profound reason. Yeah. But that is a much, and then there are left a whole host of reasons why. The other factors that I attributed really were more about broken government. Yeah, but, but even if you think about presidents, I mean, if you think about Truman, Truman, for example, was a very experienced president. No, he wasn't. He was quite experienced. And he was also absolutely. What did he do in World War One? He was probably the best-read president in our history. Knew about every single other president. He served on the Armed Services Committee during World War Two, and was was principal in dealing with waste, fraud, and abuse. He was very, very understated. So when you say he was inexperienced. Uh, yes, he was only vice president for a relatively short time, but he did in the Senate in time of war. He was very, very well read, and quite frankly, he was experienced in local tough politics. So I would argue he was far more experienced than Bill Clinton, George Bush, Barack Obama, and certainly Donald Trump. That's, that's for sure. And uh, so, and uh, the thing about them, and also before the second. The Second World War, Americans didn't vote as much as what I mean. That you had a, a smaller percentage of Americans voting before 1945 than you have today. So I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm saying that there is an argument should be made that uh, more participation is not equal to more quality of government. So I don't know. Well, I, I don't think. It's, yeah, I think I'm saying that there is, there is an argument for that. There's a lot of argument. That you've got to realize that before the Depression and World War Two. Presidency wasn't all that important. 
quite frankly. I mean, you could drive into the White House up to the steps in 19, up to 1941. It was really, what happened was, and I live in Georgetown, and Georgetown, uh, before World War II, was almost entirely black. And what happened? You had the Depression, which brought a lot of people, then in World War II, all of a sudden you fled Washington with a dollar a year, men and women, so forth and so on. Government blew up, I mean, in size. And so, a lot of white people came in and drove black people out of Georgetown, because they had no other place to live. The point is that government only became massive after 1933, when Roosevelt came in to try to get us out of the Depression. It was really World War II. But then it was on steroids. World War II, when all of a sudden, you know, we had 12 million people under arms. God knows how many people we had in government. And we were spending 30% of our GDP on these kinds of things. So, before World War II, the government was entirely different. Hi, my name is Lizzie Berlin. I'm an undergraduate student at American, and I was wondering what trader skill do you think that the recent presidents have been lacking um, that they could improve upon that would make you know, a better president? Good strategic judgment, experience, and in the cases in the in the cases of, of Clinton and, and Obama, ambivalence in not taking tough decisions, and in the case of Bush and Trump being overly aggressive. And not learn it. Do you think experience in like Congress or military experience? Do you think one? I think life. I think life in the sense that you have to have a broader view. And if, even if you're in Congress, you can become very, very narrow. Um, it takes a remarkable person. And, and you had even even Jack Kennedy. Uh, I think Jack Kennedy was a horrible president. I mean, I think he, he did some good. But Kennedy had the greatest charisma, even more than Bill Clinton. You know, I'm old enough to have played when I was very young. I played around the golf with Kennedy. I mean, Kennedy was magical. Magical. Not everybody has that kind of charisma. But you need somebody whose experience has a lot of common sense and who can listen and is prepared to bring people around who are non ideological. And it's very difficult in the press in the White House because I didn't talk about this. You have no bandwidth, it's 24 7, and you've got a thousand different crises. From trying to get somebody to give some money to the party to World War Three that's breaking out, and so how do you deal with that? So it's it's really very very difficult for any particular White House the structure of government, but inexperience, lack of real common sense, and the ability to listen. There was a hand raised in the back. Yeah. Uh, Michael Martell just got my uh, master's from GW. I'm currently a research fellow at the National Security Archives. Uh, I have two questions for you. The first was um, I noticed that the common trend. And that politicians and decision makers are expecting a much faster, cheaper end of the war. Sure. Um, which I guess I would view as an overly that's optimistic a, view of you. So it's a good view to have. Well, I was if, if you're overestimating your your, uh, your ability to end the war, and then that will occur. Yeah. yeah. Um, it suddenly becomes a prime mind. I was wondering if there were, uh, if you saw any uh, contributing factors in this overly optimistic view. And the second question was, what impact do you see uh, that uh, short, relatively short political terms have on um, politicians' willingness to engage in long-term strategy? Yeah, that, yeah. First, if, if you've had any contact with the military over the last 15 or 20 years, you have to be impressed. The military is really good. And you take a look at the first Gulf War, you 
you know, we're coming out of Vietnam, we didn't think the military was all that good. They were dazzling in almost every single circumstance since. You've got fabulous military capability. You really don't have much of an enemy, because most of our enemies did not have much of an army. They were not, not standing. And so you see these people, whether they're a private or a general, by and large, the great majority are really, really impressive. They know their stuff, they're patriotic, and they got marvelous weapons, and you cannot be dazzled. So it is not accidental that people expect something that's not achievable. And the military are the first to say, don't count on this, wars are bloody, things go wrong, but because the military appears to be so good, the perception creates that. Uh, about terms, I agree with you. I think that the one thing we should do, and I've argued that Congress should have four-year terms, the House, because they're campaigning every two years. Money is the big issue. If I had my way, I'd have no limits on spending, provided everything was open. Complete transparency. And if you violated transparency, you were banned from politics for life. That's not going to happen, but the two-year cycle is, is wrong. You, 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 people are always campaigning for the next, the next election. Is a four-year cycle long enough compared to some countries? It is in the House. Put together. It, it is, and you need some kind of turnover, but two years is just, in today's world, it, it just is not long enough. Yeah? I'm Roger Schneider. I'm a, I'm a surgeon in Baltimore. What kind of surgery do you practice? I do vascular surgery. Um, two quick questions. Uh, first of all, you've kind of avoided criticizing George Herbert Walker Bush. Is that yeah. because of his, what is perceived to be his character and integrity, and also his military background, and having been the head of the CIA, he brought some capabilities that the others didn't do you criticize? No, I, I, have, I, have, I have some criticism of that. Of HW. Um, because he was so fixated, one of the other things he did, which was really important, was making your whole freedom at peace. But he did not have the time to focus on the former Yugoslavia. And so there are some things during his watch that fell through the crack. Uh, he was also impeded by Graves' disease, as you will know, which, which, which hurt him. And he had made some other mistakes. I don't believe that George H. W. Bush was perfect. But in terms of the big issues of when to use force and when not, he had it right. And his strategic views, and, and you have to put it, Bush's Scowcroft, in many ways, the Bush Scowcroft relationship was a lot better than Nixon and Kissinger. And of course, they, Bush and Scowcroft, learned him, you know, Brett studied under Henry as the Deputy National Security Advisor. Well, I have some reasons to fault, but in terms of the big issues, Bush got the big issues right, but he did make some mistakes because I, I would argue, not in sympathy, but because he didn't have enough time. Second question. Do you believe the intent of sanctions and embargoes as, as a non-warfare approach to regime change or getting our, our foreign policy to where we want to be such as what we're trying to do with Iran or North Korea is that an effective approach rather than going to war? Well, uh, I would say most options are better than going to war, except uh, look, one of the really stupid things, of the many stupid things that the Trump administration has done, is to cancel the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. I guarantee you, if you read that 110-page document, 
if everybody agreed to it, Iraq would never, would never, never get a nuclear weapon. But the Trump team refused to believe it. They thought Iran was going to cheat, and they wanted to reverse everything that Obama did. And in act of spite, it is nonsensical. And anybody who says otherwise doesn't know what they're talking about because they've not read the document. And they will argue, well, Iran would have gotten the weapon nonetheless. But they would have violated the treaty or the agreement. On top of that, those who argue, well, they've got their military bases where they can do it. Has anybody ever been to Los Alamos? Do you know what it takes to, for centrifuges and plutonium manufacturing for reprocessing and enrichment? You're not going to hide it in a military base. So, unfortunately, the steps we've taken. Now, Russia has put us in a very difficult position. And so the only weapon we think we can have are sanctions. But the stupidity of the sanctions are that they're going to hurt our allies in Europe who don't see the threat. One of the things we failed to do, and I do not understand this, is take on Russian active measures. Russian active measures go back to Lenin. Anybody who thinks the Russians are now interfering in our elections, read about the Zenobius letter, read about the common turn and the common form, go back and read about the Rosenbergs. This has been going on forever. So what do we do to counter the disinformation, disinformation, propaganda? Nothing. If we had said, for example, give you two ideas. Um, press report, Vladimir Putin's daughter is, is at Harvard, and her name is Rosa Klepp, or whatever. She's a boy. Now, it would be countermeasures and so forth. If the Supreme Allied Commander in Europe stood up, Russia has a large monopoly on theater that is short-range nuclear weapons in Europe. We only have a couple of hundred stationed there. And we're worried about this imbalance because we fear if there's an attack, Russia will threaten nuclear weapons and we will have no other option. If the Supreme Allied Command of Europe set up and said, there is no truth to the rumor that under my operational command, I now have a Trident submarine with 20 warheads and 300, with 20 missiles and 300 warheads, whatever, 300 warheads. The general staff in Moscow would go ballistic. Because they would believe the opposite. So we have been very clumsy in the way that we have dealt with Russia. But unfortunately, we are where we are. And let me carry on for a minute. Russia and Putin are not without some justification what they did. I was at the Bucharest NATO summit in 2008 where George W. Bush promised NATO membership to Georgia and Ukraine which was foolish, and the reason he did it was because we could not give them membership action plan agreement. And so this was a sort of secondary prize. Putin was there. Putin went up to Bush and said, George, recounting how George's father had said to Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait in 1990, this will not stand. And Putin said, this will not stand, George. And Bush put his arm around Putin and said, Black, Come on, it's not going to be, we can work this out. Putin said we can. Four months later, they went into where? Georgia. Now what? Georgia's not going to become a member of NATO because 20% of the territory is occupied. So we have a lot of responsibility in how we expand NATO. I was opposed for a lot of the expansion of NATO after the unification of Germany. So it's not, they're not entirely all the bad guys. And you can understand what they're trying to do to defeat NATO. And, and, and they have been brilliant. I mean, all right, in the 2018, everybody believes, everybody believes that Russia's interfering in the 2018 election. 
Who doesn't believe that? Okay. Why would they? How are they going to change the election? Tell me how they're going to do that. It's not Hillary versus Donald. No. You've got 435 seats out of being in, in the House, and you've got 34 in the Senate. How are they going to change? And what are they, you know, they're not. But what they are doing is disinformation and distractions. They have been bringing. So we're now, I mean, Putin is probably sitting back in the Kremlin laughing, saying, how can they be so stupid? Now, in, in Europe, it's a different issue because they seriously can affect. But we have not registered this. We've reacted by overreacting, and we've come up with the wrong strategies, in my judgment. And so, is that going to change? I don't know. But right now, Putin has been enormously clever. He does have arguments on his side. I don't agree with all of them. But administration after administration, it goes back to Obama, the reset, and red lines with, with Assad and all this kind of nonsense. The pivot to Asia, all these things were, were just slogans, and they hurt our credibility. And so we are where we are. We're going to increase sanctions because that's the only thing we have. And quite frankly, the Russians are going to get around it, no matter what we say and do. So it's a problem. You had a question? I did. Uh, my name is Henry Flannan. I'm a retired FBI agent. And I think it is going to, I don't quite agree with you on the fact that. Uh, it, don't know what it's going to take with the younger people realizing just what some of the problems are. I think it is going to take the person. You may be right. That's happened in the past. Yeah, well, right, but I think it's going to happen. It took the 2008 financial crisis to realize that the housing market and, 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 and back securities and securitized debt doesn't work. Sure. And, and that's the that's the outcome. Yeah. Um, I'd like some enlightenment. You talked about the presidents and their lack of. Understanding. Yeah. Not militarily, more than that. More than that. <coughs> um, well, I'm, I'm really speaking of, of war. I, I thought Congress had the power to declare war, and have there not been presidents in recent history who have disguised it as something else? When's the last time we declared war? Congressional December 8th, 1941. Everything has been a resolution, too. The Tonkin Gulf resolution, Korea was a resolution, two AUMS, authority, authorization of military force, both after September 11th and then the this is, this is This is dereliction of responsibility by Congress. If you're going to go to war, we go to war for something, you need a declaration of war. And Congress does not have the backbone to do it. Sam. Well, I agree with that. We have time to have somebody else a second part. Last question, I'm afraid. I made an observation about the early comments that you made, you know, and contextually why um, why America loses everything. Which are two points? Cultural deficiency in understanding culture. At the same time, mentioned about the strategic uh, superior uh, HW uh, Bush. Bush. Yeah. It was during my um, doctoral program, there was a, uh, there was a speaker, um, I think if I remember correctly, his name David McKay. Um, or is that? No, David McKay, who was part of the Iran infection. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah, he was making an observation that's counter to what you said about George Bush. 
and that is the strategic ideas were lacking because he uh, made the. But David Kelly, we talked about George W. Bush because that's when he was already putting on. I'm talking about. I'm making a generalized statement that the perception, uh, the strategic perception, seems to be always lacking, and that's one of the reasons I think we missed the boat. Uh, the Iraq War took place with the assumption that there is, uh, there is, uh, there is going to be a change of regime and there's going to be so many other things that you mentioned. But I think, you know, the destabilization really destabilized the whole region. Of course, absolutely. And yes, it did. But, you know, in terms of making the assertion that Bush Bush's strategic ideas were right on track, I take a view of comparing what I heard from the UK before. That it seems that um, his strategic ideas were basically the reason for the demise of the whole situation we have created. And George H. W. Bush, George W. Bush, the father, the father, the father had a very, very clear. If you if you read the book by by both Bush and Stoltenberg, it's really clear what they wanted. They wanted to make Europe whole for the peace. They wanted to make sure that Russia did not collapse. It was Bush who authorized loans to Yeltsin. They had a very, very clear strategic view of what they wanted to do. And they did. Certainly in Iraq, when Saddam had invaded, sorry, in Kuwait, what they wanted to do, the only mistake they made in my judgment was letting the Al Sabah family go back to rule Kuwait. If they had made the change there, it might have been different. But but I think I think that Bush got that part right, and there was a strategic view. Um, so I don't. And, and David Kay did not have much to do with the George H. W. Bush. He was the arms inspector. We're talking about the same David Kay uh, with the UN during the George W. Bush administration. When he came out, it was very critical about the Bush administration, and that's why he was replaced. As, as I remember, Cheney was the person who was press, pressing George W. To go after Iraq. Uh, you've got look, you've got the so-called conservatives, the, the chicken hawks. George W. Bush had a vision. If you read it very closely, he said, "I have a higher father." Quote, "I have a higher father." What does that mean? And I have the inspiration. Quote, "We are going to change the greater. We're going to change the geostrategic landscape of the Middle East by imposing democracy." Read his freedom agenda so This was Bush and Cheney and Wolfowitz were people who were advocates and who um, advanced that. But it was George W. Bush's vision. Thank you very much. Thank you.